Hi guys, welcome to the Macros Bodybuilding and Powerlifting <coughs> Podcast. We have both Mark and Mike this week. And I just want to start off by saying thank you to everyone who's reviewed the podcast so far. We have four five-star reviews, which is fantastic. And the words that have been said there are really, really kind. I also want to encourage more people to review it because we're going to extend this um, opportunity to get a free book that Mike has recently mm -hmm. released, about Healthy Eating, to another week because I want to encourage more reviews to come. Um, because I feel like four is good, but I definitely think we can get more and more people maybe need to be made aware that we're giving this opportunity to receive this fantastic book, uh, which I've really enjoyed reading. I'm only just on the calories chapter and already I'm really enjoying it. I know Mark's started reading it as well. You're enjoying it, aren't you, Mark? Yeah, really, really well written and easy to read. Uh, reaches everyone uh, at all levels. I think it's a great book. So we definitely want to encourage you to review the podcast because you love it. And also we want to make sure someone receives a copy of this book because it's excellent. So we've had some great questions this week and I'm going to kick it off with Francisco Martinez Naranjo. I love Facebook names, just the best. Uh, so he is asking, and this is actually asked last time, but I didn't get onto it. But I thought it was a good question uh, because, yeah, it's a good question. Why do you use delayed onset muscle soreness as an indicative of how productive a workout is and how do you use them properly for this manner? Manner? Matter? Um, that's asked in a bit of a strange way. So Mike, kind of, I know you've talked about soreness and how having some soreness most of the time is probably a good thing. Is this a good thing? Mm-hmm. So I think soreness is a pretty good proxy for the degree of muscle damage done, and thus it's a good proxy for the degree of homeostatic disruption. Insofar as homeostatic disruption is actually causative of hypertrophic pathways to begin to unfold, I think it's a decent place to start. It's by no means the only place to start. It is very possible to have muscle growth without delayed onset muscle soreness. But I think those uh, muscle growth that you get in, in the absence of delayed onset muscle soreness by no means clears to me that that is the optimal rate of muscle growth. From everything I know and combining sources of literature with my own experience, I think that if you're not getting sore at all from your training, you are probably not causing sufficient damage uh, in sufficient volume loads to incur the most adaptation that you could. If you're getting violently sore from training to the point where it's debilitating, you're probably causing so much homeostatic disruption that you're barely going to be able to recover and you won't be able to actually adapt. So I think in between there, Mild to moderate soreness for most of your training is something that you should really be targeting as someone who's focused on hypertrophy. If you're focused on strength, this is an entirely different conversation, so I will stick to hypertrophy only. Mm -hmm. In chasing muscle hypertrophy, if you people say, you know, I used to get sore back when I was uh, smaller, but, but or back when I was starting out, but I don't get sore anymore. Well, that to me just says you haven't sufficiently adjusted your overload. Okay, uh, you should consistently be getting sore because you adjust your overload. If people say things like, I didn't get, you know, I got sore in the first week, but then in the second week I didn't get sore. Well, if you up your volume load enough, you continue to get sore. Mm -hmm. Is there such a thing as getting too sore? Of course there is. If you get debilitatingly sore and you drop your strength so much that you're unable to provide further overloads, or I think at an actual molecular and, and histological at a cellular level, a lot of delayed onset muscle soreness can actually cause scar tissue formation at a microscopic level, and it's really just an injury at that point. But there is a fine line there, and I think that is sort of moderate, low to moderate delayed onset muscle soreness is probably a good thing to chase. 
And some people say, well, you know, some of my muscles don't get sore. I think that's okay as long as you know you're pushing them really hard. So I think some people's, a lot of muscles get sore, but they just haven't ever done these volume loads requisite of getting those muscles sore. So I, I don't think you should chase soreness per se, but when you have an intelligent constructor program, it should be getting you mildly to moderately sore. And as long as it's doing that, I think you're in the clear. And I think that if you're not getting sore, you definitely should concern yourself with whether or not you're upping uh, your volumes close to your MRV or not. And I think if you're getting violently debilitatingly sore, you're, you're probably under-recovering, and then you're probably doing maybe more harm than good, or maybe equal parts harm and good, and it's treading water. So I think that I would follow proxy of muscle soreness. I've been doing it my entire career, and it's been very productive. And anytime I see people who do not proxy muscle soreness, and I see their program designs, uh, it's very, sometimes people have really logical and great programs and they don't, they say they don't get sore and they don't proxy muscle soreness at all. I think it's overrated. I think it's fine. I think that most people who don't proxy their soreness to their results, uh, their programs are indicative of violations of training principles. Uh, for example, doing the same set numbers week after week after week, three by 10 week one, three by 10 week two, three by 10 week three, three by 10 week four deload. You know, it's been shown beyond a reasonable doubt that volume is a gigantic progenitor of muscle growth. And so is intensity. And while everyone knows you're supposed to put weight on the bar with week to week to week, nobody does the same weight every week. Why the hell don't people increase their volume every week? It makes no sense. And and is the you know and like again, soreness is a sign of homeostatic disruption. If you are if you are violently sore in your first week and then not sore after, that means your first week was too hard. You were not adapted to those kinds of exercises yet, those particular angles of pull. That's why when I start all of my programs that I write for people or the templates I write or my own programs. You start out with not so many sets. A lot of people have, who, who have gotten, uh, particularly female clients, we've had a, a great success with RP with a female physique templates, which are actually auto-regulated based on delayed onset muscle soreness. They'll get the template and say, oh my God, it's only like two sets of everything. That's ridiculous. Uh, just wait. Okay, so if you're not getting very sore, you rate it as I'm not getting sore, and it adds sets. And if you're getting really, really sore, it doesn't add sets or it starts taking them away if you're debilitatingly sore. So after a couple of weeks, they're doing five or six sets on every exercise, and that's five exercises a day, and that's a huge amount of volume, but the result of that is that they're approximately the same level of sore through the entire time. That means they're dispersing their muscle growth, not going too far, not, not going far enough the entire time that they're training, which I think is, is what you want. It's adequately titrated. So uh, that's how I use soreness as a proxy. So if you want to use it in your own training, my tips are this. Start out when you start a new week, the goal for that week should be to do enough volume in these new exercises that you chose for your next mental cycle that will get you pretty sore, but nothing crazy. And then next week, you can up the volume a little bit to get pretty sore, but nothing crazy. And the last week before you deload, you can really mess yourself up and get super sore to work on that super compensation effect to get you those great results after the deload. But the last week, which I've had former clients of mine called wheelchair week, <laughs> uh, when you can't walk... <laughs> I mean, that is a time to really go overboard and really program functional overreaching. I am by no means the first person to say this. Um, mm -hmm. and that's when you should be really messed up sore, but it's not week one. So if you have a program when you're sore in the first week and you're not after that, that is not like, oh, what's soreness? It's just an artifact and that's just some stuff that happens. No, no, no. Uh, I think it's a design of programming. I think it's a very good thing. Um, mm -hmm. When you think about colloquially, how do you know things are growing? Things get sore. You know, people say things, uh, it's just baffling things like soreness has nothing to do with muscle growth. So so when, when you do a bunch of pec flies for the first time, and you do a bunch of bench press for the first time, and you get massive sore in, in your pecs, but that, that really doesn't mean they're growing. It has nothing to do with their growth. So you could design a program which you never get sore, but you grow optimally. I have a very, very hard time believing that. Mm -hmm. How are you supposed to overload if you never get sore? Uh, 
I don't know. It, 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 I don't think there's ever been a, a very, very large muscular person who's p tapped their potential fully and just didn't regularly get sore all the time. You talk mm -hmm. to almost all bodybuilders, they get sore all the time. They get sore their whole life. Something's always sore. So uh, now is it the debilitating, I can't get up out of a chair soreness? No, there's a time and a place for that. That time is very rarely. But but if you're if you're chronically trying to avoid soreness, if you really decided to pretend that soreness has nothing to do with muscle growth, you, you are not offering a very... Powerful argument. I'll tell you another thing really quick while I'm on the <coughs> subject of ranting on soreness to people who say that soreness has nothing to do with muscle growth. Metabolite accumulation, things like katsu training, right, uh, occlusion training. A lot of bodybuilders and people in the industry knew that these kinds of things had to produce a lot of hypertrophy way before the recent studies that have confirmed that these things, in fact, do produce a measurable degree of hypertrophy. How did I know back in the day that occlusion training produced a lot of hypertrophy or that drop sets, supersets, really high rep sets produce growth? Because they fucking made you sore like fucking crazy. And, and if you did something that didn't make you sore at all, you weren't going to suspect it of growing you at all. And you would be correct. <laughs> so, uh, so while it's possible to take the very few studies on the subject on, on beginners, which have their own problems I could get into, and say, well, see, soreness doesn't really correlate with growth, uh, I think that's a very premature conclusion. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a wrong conclusion. And I think middle-of-the-road soreness should be, can be, a proxy for some very good hypertrophy programming. Brilliant answer. I mean, yeah. I know having read your stuff and even read Brad Schoenfeld's stuff, like muscle damage is clearly one of the key pathways for hypertrophy. Obviously, not the only one and not maybe the most important one, but, but certainly metabolic, one of them. But, but metabolic uh, upregulation, so metabolite sequestration also causes delayed onset muscle soreness. Yeah. So if you say, okay, it's not just about damage, it's about metabolites too, well, they make you sore also. And then mm -hmm. you say, well, just volume load. Right? It's not just about damage, it's about how much work you do. But the more work you do, the more fucking sore you get. Like, mm -hmm. go ahead and do 10 by 10 squats and tell me you don't get sore. You know, and if you don't, maybe you should fucking do more, right? Uh, I, I, you know, and the thing is people say, well, I get great results and I don't get sore. And that's very cool. It's very possible. It's very true. I can believe that. But maybe you'd get better results if you pushed it a little harder and actually got sore. Not all the time crazy sore, but just every now and again, just a little twinge. I think that probably means you're doing some good stuff there. Mm -hmm. That is, a, it, it's like a symptom of overload. Yeah. How did yeah. I know I overloaded? Because my physiology is telling me I'm paying for it right now. There's literal damage and disruption. And I agree also that some muscles tend to get really sore, other ones not so much. Is that to do with, I know, like the hamstrings? Because you can eccentrically load them quite a lot. They just tend to get really sore, which I know I have to be quite careful with, like the hip hinge yeah. to like leg curl ratio and things. Totally. Some muscles don't get as sore as others. It is your job to try to figure out how to get them sore because whatever that is, it's going to simulate them better. Uh, sometimes you have to make up for it with just sheer volume, which doesn't get you as sore but still gets you some good hypertrophy. I think the muscles that don't get as sore as the others are also probably muscles that don't grow as much as the others, um, unfortunately. But if you genetically have muscles that don't get very sore, that means you can probably train them more, still recover, still make great gains. And obviously, you have to watch your MRV. You have to watch if you're technically recovering, if your strength continues to be at normal ranges and not down. And you can probably do a lot. My biceps almost never get sore. So I can fucking train my biceps like 20, 25 sets a week, no problem, uh, every other day. And they grow great. And, and it's, not a, it's not a big deal. So I'll tell you this. If you're not getting sore on something, you should at least be beating the living shit out of it. Because you know the only reason you shouldn't be beating the living shit out of it is it gets sore. I train my hamstrings like 1.5 times a week. One time easy and one time hard, and and my hamstrings are sore all the time. So and that's all it takes, right? Which is great. I mean, hey, listen, 
guys, between us and then the viewers, how easy would it be if everything was like hamstring training? Jesus Christ, you spend like 30 minutes in the gym five times yeah. a week and everything would grow amazingly. I could barely do anything for my hamstrings. They're massive. Well, because you put enough weight on there and you do enough eccentric damage and fuck, they get huge. You don't have to spend a ton of time. What about something like lats? You know, when, when, your lats don't get that sore. They get sore, but not much. How much work do you have to do for your back to get it big, to get it? A fuck ton, right? So, and in the end, when you do enough work for your back to get it big, it probably ends up being about as sore as your hamstrings, maybe a little bit less, but something like that. And then finally, you get your back to grow as fast, but it takes like ten times the work, or something like that, or three times the work, right? So, yeah. the, the uh, so you know, that's just another argument for you know, <clears throat> some muscles, yes, they don't get as sore as others, but you should. And maybe it's not in the cards for them to get as sore as others, but at the very least, you should know that the reason they're not getting sore, you should be sure for yourself. It, that reason should not be that you're not pushing it. That reason at the worst should be that they mechanically, for whatever reason, fiber type, don't get sore. And then that's okay, right? But uh, you should at least make sure that you're slamming them so that you're not on the on the lower side of things. Does that, does that not frustrate you as well when you'll see personal trainers or online coaches, coaches talk about, like, you know, run the program for a few weeks, you'll feel sore for a few weeks, but then don't worry because you'll get used to it and things will, you won't get sore anymore. Like, what? Like, Mark, it frustrates what? me beyond a fucking, beyond a reasonable level. <laughs> uh, your, purpose, your purpose is not to adapt to the program. The purpose of the program is to never allow you to fully adapt, thus always spurring you to further adaptations. When you have successfully gotten used to something, it has successfully stopped making you better. When you adapt to a program is after you've deloaded from it. Then you need a new program, okay? But in a strength training, because it's a performance-oriented approach, because there's neurological elements involved, you should be very well adapted to the movements so that they don't make you sore, so that you can do more of them and get better neurological stimulus without as much physiological stimulus. Because at that point, the physiological stimulus just makes you fatigued. Yes, for strength training, you should get used to programs. You should not be getting sore from sets of five all the time. If you are, you need more work capacity, right? You need uh, a better base. But, uh, but for hypertrophy training, it never stops, man. And as soon as you can say, oh, hypertrophy training used to be hard, but now it's easy, you're not training for hypertrophy anymore, no matter what you think. Um, it never gets easier. I'll tell you guys this. I'm a little bit further down the road than most people as far as how much muscle I've grown and how long I've been doing this. Don't expect training to get easier a little bit. Don't, don't expect <laughs> training to get easier. It gets harder. It gets harder, but the good news, you get more jacked. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and if it ever got easier, uh, and, I, and I continued to get more jacked, I mean, holy shit, wouldn't that be a sweet discovery? Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. And, and, and what a ridiculous thing to think it ever would, right? Um, you know, there was that, there was that uh, whole trend in minimalism. Probably a couple of years back, it was really big, like Martin Burkhan or something like that. Um, he used to say, you know, he only trains a couple sets a week, and uh, he doesn't get sore, and he thinks it's stupid and overrated, and... And the only thing I have to say to that is he'd be a lot more jacked if he got fucking sore and trained double what he does or triple what he does. So, I mean, and now, like, you know, with Brad Schoenfeld's push, the, the volume hypertrophy relationship isn't really up for grabs anymore. Mm -hmm. It's not up yeah. for debate. So, you know, now Brad's saying that, you know, there's a linear relationship between, like, three like three to five, you know, eight or so and ten sets for hypertrophy. I mean, there's no sign 
of a decline. So my prediction of around 20 cents MRV for most people, I got to be honest, looking pretty good. Okay, it's unlikely that it would be 12, right? Because very rarely does something go like this and then just go like that, right? So it's probably going to be at 15. Some people are going to slow down at 20. I think most people peak 25 is too much for most people. <laughs> if you can do 20 sets a week and not get sore and you're actually employing uh, logical exercise variation, then awesome, great. You'll probably grow without getting sore. Most of us can't do that. And for most of us, in most of our musculature, soreness and fatigue is a pretty good proxy for hypertrophic stimuli. Perfect. I think nail in the coffin for for that one. I think that's really, really well explained. And yeah. I think uh, for some people, they get a bit confused between their hypertrophy and strength goals, and then they they then try not to get sore because they want to get stronger. Agreed. And they're not. And that's a good idea. For agreed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Awesome, uh, Mark. Ready for the next question? <clears throat> yeah, so we've got a question from Vera Nishkanen. I hope I've pronounced that okay. So after one week long upper respiratory tract infection with a mild fever, when running a strength hypertrophy block, strength or hypertrophy block with increasing volume intensity, along with a planned overreaching week in the last, uh, in the last week before deloading, should you wait until you're well again to continue the program from where you left off or would you go back down a week in the message cycle or begin from the start like like almost go back to the start of that message cycle and run the whole thing again neither the actually the answer the actual answer is none of those uh, and actually, no, Vera, she went to um, uh, see if she was at our, at our seminar in, in the United Kingdom and uh, just got an excellent Finnish accent. So, um, you know, I think the, the, probably the best approach is to take a mini deload, a series of light days after you're done being sick, to reacquaint yourself with the movements, get a little volume load going, finish your recovery, and then once that is, that is completed, then you can hit the next week you were supposed to in that cycle. So that way, when you were sick, uh, you probably didn't train much, but you dropped a whole lot of fatigue from muscular and damage sources. And now that you've reacquainted yourself over a series of light days, maybe three to four days, I think it's fine to start the next programmed week. Uh, if you're feeling, man, really kind of out of it and really weak, you can start the mesocycle over again. But I think in most cases, mini deload and then hit the next week of training. And the reason for that is if after you're done being sick, you can go back and smash it again, but you're really at risk for complications and, and more sickness. You're not quite sure if you're well yet, and a lot of the motor patterns and stuff aren't fresh because you haven't trained in so long. So mini deload, mostly to get you back in, in the uh, abilities to execute uh, training, and then I think it's time to hit it again uh, for like week three or whatever she was on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially if you've got a, a fever. Like if you're that ill that you've got – a fever, your your core temperature is up. Obviously, training would be like a no go. I take and just rest, digest, get better, recover, and then go again. So don't try and be a hero and, and train through it. Or would there be times where you would suggest trying to do anything at all when you're when you're ill, or would you rest properly? And then when you have a fever, the only kind of training you should be doing is the very lightest kind of deload training. So when you actually have a fever, you shouldn't be training at all. Yeah. When you're just getting over having a fever, you should be doing very light deload training. And then after you're completely better, then you can start with a progression of, of microcycles again, actual overloading microcycles. 
Um, I am actually, I did a rack pulls with over 600 pounds once when I had a full-blown flu. Uh, it was a euphoric experience, but I wouldn't <laughs> recommend it to anybody. I'm not sure it really did anything positive. Um, and, you know, somebody asked me, I, I posted a picture on Facebook a while ago, and I said, you know, I was just getting over some kind of upper respiratory tract infection, and I'm still pounding it in the gym. Uh, it was not a central infection. It was peripheral only. So I didn't have like a huge fever or anything like that. I don't think I had a fever at all. And uh, peripheral infections you can train through if you want to take the gamble. They can turn into central infections if you fuck it up too much. So for me, that particular leg workout wasn't the hardest thing I've ever done. It was just getting in there and putting in the work. And I, I was still on the same diet, but I was on a diet at the time. And, you know, when you're hypocaloric, you got to do what it takes. You're on a mission. Uh, it, you know, it's a calculated risk. And I wouldn't recommend that risk to most people, but in my case, I thought it weighed out. Uh, but if it's a fever, et cetera, you know, your number one priority is on getting better. And it, funny enough, you can use that time to actually enhance your overall training, uh, which is something I can speak to right now. You know, a lot of us have a really hard time taking time off of training completely, and sometimes that kind of off time is good, particularly for the joints, connective tissues, etc. And while fevers don't let you drop fatigue of most kinds, psychological fatigue isn't going to drop during when you're sick, sick, um, nervous system fatigue might not, the actual joint structures and stuff are no longer getting hammered, and they may actually undergo some healing processes. So if you're sick, take that as a good opportunity to rest a lot, not move a lot, eat some good food, relax, both psychologically, get yourself really strung up for training, and physiologically you'll be getting there. Think of it as a forced act of rest, and then, or more like a passive rest, which sometimes is a good idea. So, you know, when, when you get really sick and you're sick for a week, don't get fucking suicidal and be like, I can't believe I missed a week of training. The world is coming to a fucking end. You did miss a week of training. You are less muscular and you are less strong than you were before you started. But the potentiation, the recovery that you got from that sickness, from not being in the gym, is going to push you even further beyond which you could have gone if you didn't get sick. So I would actually say that for someone especially who doesn't manage fatigue very well, who doesn't take active rest phases, which is probably most of us at some time or another, we just like to fucking train, getting pretty sick twice a year on the net balance for training might actually be a good thing for a lot of people. <laughs> uh, because it keeps people away from being psychos. And hey, listen, after you have the flu for a week and you start to get better, there has never been a time where you wanted to hit the weights hard. Yeah. And that kind of motivation lasts for months. And that kind of recovery of joint structures also lasts for months. So when you think, oh, you know, this is bad, it's not all bad. It's like people who transition from cutting to massing and notice that they're not getting not as lean as they used to be. Yeah, but you're also more muscular than you used to be. So if you just focus on how fat you are, mass phase is the worst thing in the world. But if you remember that you're also getting jacked and the next time you get lean, you're going to bring so much more muscle to your look, everything's got its good parts and its bad parts. Like right now I'm dieting and I'm fucking miserable. But I think when I'm in my most miserable moments, every misery tinted little five minutes of time is the direct symptom of fat loss. That misery is a symptom of fat loss. Mm -hmm. So I'm losing fat. This is fucking great. And if I wasn't miserable, I'm not so sure I'd be losing fat, right? Uh, you know, if there's no homeostatic disruption, there's no siphon for calories, you know, yeah, you feel great. You're not getting much leaner. So I think it's always good to look at the bright side of things. And even being sick, don't try to be a hero and fuck the whole process up. 
Because if you go to the gym and try to train hard when you're really fucking sick, like when you have a fever, you do yourself two bad favors. One, you're not going to be able to overload anyway, so your time in the gym is going to be pissed away. You don't get stronger just being in the gym. You get stronger overloading in the gym. You're not well enough to overload, and you could get really hurt if you tried. Number two is, so you can't overload, but you're doing just enough damage to not actually recover from anything. So you've pissed away this free act of rest that you've gotten because you're too fucking egotistical to to actually, you know, uh, benefit from it, to actually realize, okay, I'm sick, I might as well take the benefits and the costs. Because you're already paying the costs and there's no way around that. So you might as well take the benefits too. Great answer. Um I love that you had the silver lining there. It's yeah. just whenever you have these negative things happen to you, just like you said with dieting, just look at the silver lining. It always helps. That's, I think as a coach, it's something that's really helped me. And actually, I'd never really thought of it that way when my clients are sick. Think of it as, well, actually, you're taking this as like it's a forced active rest that we never really allow our bodies to do. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. I love that. Awesome. Uh, shall I go on to the next question, Mark? Yeah, go for it, mate. Cool. So we have Vince Panu, who has said, Mike recommends a few weeks of low volume after a bulk to set you up for a higher volume cut. But he doesn't recommend the same when the cut is over and before a bulk. That'd be the same in reverse. And I know, and I spoke to Mike just before we came on the podcast, that Lyle McDonald has this, when you're coming out of the cutting phase, you go through a short lower volume maintenance phase which Mike recommends after a bulking phase, but not after the cutting phase. Mike, generally, we talked about this on another podcast, you come out of the gates kind of flying, um, not flying necessarily, but coming out trying to build muscle mass, you actually go into a calorie surplus. And I know Lyle McDonald has the argument that it's actually you're primed for fat gain um, and not for lean muscle gain. Your thoughts on that and maybe just explaining a bit more in depth because maybe this question has come up because it maybe wasn't covered enough in depth before. You're very primed for lean muscle gain after you're done cutting. You're primed for both fat gain and muscle gain. And because on average, the kind of things you do to your body when you're training and dieting well, eating good foods, not in excessive amounts, making sure to have high volume training, they bias the nutrient siphon towards muscle and away from fat anyway. So yes, you are more likely at the end of a cut if you transition to massing to gain more fat, but you're also likely to gain more muscle. On the other hand, if you do take a low volume and moderate calorie maintenance phase after you're done cutting, uh, you will shut down some of the uh, pathways that enhance fat accretion after but you'll shut down the muscle accretion pathways as well. Is there a role for potentially a sort of semi-low volume phase with a very, very small caloric surplus right after dieting? Yes. Is there a very good argument for a total cessation of moving up and just a maintenance phase right after dieting? I don't see much of an argument for that. I see a little less of an argument for that. I think you want to take advantage of that rebound to gain plenty of muscle. Um, because if you don't, you don't get the muscle advantage anyway. Um, yeah. Especially as you get bigger and bigger. Muscle gain becomes much harder than fat loss. Um, and you might as well do everything you can to gain muscle because you can just burn the fat with a diet later. Okay? You don't add some kind of magic form of fat that sticks around forever right after you diet. Um, 
the big mistake with dieting that I, I do think that the, these folks have a real good answer to is when your show is over, or when you're done cutting, don't just fucking blow up and start gaining five kilos a week or some shit like that. So when people say like, do you just transition right into a, a bulk? Any fucking stupid term anyway. But um, yeah, when you, when you transition to a hypercaloric mass phase after training, it should be like, you know, half a kilo a week. <laughs> Are you really going to get super fat from that by training with high volumes? I don't, I don't think so. Right. So now the treatment of training volume, you know, during these uh, situations is a little more tricky because you just had pretty high training volumes coming off of a cut and you're sensitized nutritionally to fat gain or to muscle gain and fat gain, but maybe not training wise, you're sensitized to it. So there may be some argument of taking a lower volume, slightly lower volume kind of resensitization phase with a very slow bulk at, at first and then accelerating your uh, your weight gain and accelerating your muscle or your your volume in the second mesocycle afterwards. You could also probably do it in reverse. With the first mesocycle after a really big cut, you just blast it with everything you've got. Super crazy high volumes. Nobody overreaches during that mesocycle because you're eating so much. Um, and then after that, a lower volume phase uh, maybe even a mini cutting phase, a mini maintenance, or just a very slight calorie deficit, uh, which is super easy after you've had a big one before. And then you start massing process all over again with uh, low volumes during that time. There's something to think about there. I think there's one big practical consideration too. So I could go either way on the technical consideration. I think I would, if, if someone said, yeah, you should really take a maintenance phase right after your diet, and the, the evidence is very clear for that. I could believe that. I very much could. The number of people that can pull that off psychologically borders on maybe 1%. Um, after a, especially after a bodybuilding show, especially after a really deep cut. Um, nobody's going back to maintenance. That's fucking nonsense. Um, that takes the kind of willpower I've seen in almost no individuals, certainly not myself. Um, after you cut, you you're going to fucking mass whether or not you like it. So you might as well train hard. So I think about a mesocycle after cutting, you got to use all the tricks in the book, metabolite training, all this crazy shit, slam the high volumes, eat plenty of food, gain some weight. And then the next mesocycle, you can start to approach it in a, uh, perhaps let's resensitize some pathways kind of situation. But when people say, I'm just going to go back to maintenance after I'm done cutting for a show or whatever, Maintenance after you're done cutting for two or three months, totally possible. Great idea. And then I would recommend all the same things, especially if you want to cut again. But maintenance after a show diet, I never really seen anybody pull that off. Yeah. Um, people say they pull it off and then they gain a bunch of weight anyway. So that's my thoughts on so, the matter. Yeah. Just to clarify, in terms of someone who's just maybe doing a mini cut who then wants to bulk again, would you say do the mini cut, then do the maintenance phase, then bulk, or would you just go mini cut into that higher volume kind of bulking period and then resensitize and then bulk again? It, it depends a little bit on your training structure, but I think you totally can do a mini cut, then a maintenance phase, as long as it's a real maintenance phase and you don't eat a lot of food and get fat, uh, mm -hmm. then start to mass again. I think that's totally fine. I think that's very logical in some circumstances. Sometimes you can do them back-to-back. -back. I like to do them back-to-back -back and then take a maintenance phase. So you don't have to take these maintenance phases all the time. But uh, I, th I think the, the big point, the, my big kind of uh, contrabalance to the Lyle approach is Lyle says that you're really in a good position to gain fat after, right after a cut. I agree. 
but you're also in your best position to gain muscle. And insofar as fat is easier to lose than muscle is to gain for most advanced people, I think that biases the equation into taking that big muscle hit. Because look, if you do take that maintenance phase, you won't uh, get as fat when you start massing again later, but you also won't get as muscular. Uh, and then what? You know, you're kind of, uh, you've minimized damage for sure, but uh, I'm not so sure you've potentiated any gains. Now, I think that the I've used the rebound after cutting a long time, almost everyone, and I, I got really, really big uh, without any drugs, and, you know, I think it worked. <laughs> now, could it have worked better? Could I have been leaner? Maybe, maybe. I think there's something to say to that. So this whole situation is something I'm, like, you know, not 100% sure about, but, uh, but I remain unconvinced. Uh, I very much remain unconvinced that if you're trying to decrease the potentiation of fat gain, that you're not also going to decrease the potentiation of muscle gain. I think those two go hand in hand. Yeah, I think that was a great point, actually. Sorry about cool. that. Guys. I think we beat it um, to death. <laughs> I I did have. I don't know if you might have talked about it. Um, I know because one of uh, Lyle's references is the Minnesota starvation study, and he talked about how the people there gained. They said, I think, to quote one of his articles, said the bottom line is that. In dieted down individuals, the body is primed to gain body fat at the expense of lean body mass to replenish what was lost during the diet. And I know he quotes the Minnesota starvation study, but I assume, and I, I haven't read the study kind of recently at all, that those subjects were not doing high volume training with. They weren't doing any training. Yeah. Okay. So, so I, I just thought I'd bring it up because I think. Sometimes it's not really there for the case of a bodybuilder. It just it doesn't really stand stead. But yeah, I think I really think you did beat it to death. And I also wanted to say actually, because I remember saying on the last podcast when we introduced this coming out of the, the cutting phase, I've done this um, with a couple of clients. And one person has just finished uh, five weeks of very high volume massing, incorporating all, everything you said, using all the tricks for hypertrophy, and he's gained like a decent amount of muscle and it's evidently clear and now we're going through that a two-week low volume resensitization phase to then mass for longer uh, and yeah uh, for me as a coach it's worked very successfully i have done it the other way as well but i think like you have pointed out you leave gains on the table essentially which is not not something you want to do yep cool so mark do you want to go for the next question yeah, so we've got Sami Walker, and the question is, my Sami's last bout of dieting resulted in a significant drop in testosterone. Um, I think he was having some blood work done along with that. It took about six weeks eating at maintenance to bring levels back to baseline. Fat intake was pretty low towards the end, around 30 grams per day. And overall calorie deficit ended at approximately 25% of maintenance. Mike, Sammy would like to know, what, what would you suggest to prevent a similar drop during my next diet or decrease such as this inevitable during a prolonged deficit? So we know that testosterone drops, but I guess he wants to minimize that in some way. Yeah, there are a lot of variables here. So... <coughs> Could have been training too hard, and that would have dropped his testosterone. So all things being equal, it couldn't have been that bad. 
could have been doing too much exercise, too much cardio, et cetera. A drop in calories from baseline of just 25% is really quite unimpressive. Mm. Uh, to put that in perspective, right now I'm dieting and I'm about at 50% of my baseline calories. Um, it sucks. Yeah. It definitely yeah. sucks. But, um, you know, 25% doesn't seem like a lot. And, and the, the usual literature on the subject, at 25%, you're not supposed to see huge reductions in serum testosterone. The fat intake is concerning, and I think it's way too low. I'm not sure how much this individual weighs, but I think, you know, for myself, 60 grams of fat daily minimum uh, is what keeps me plugging along. So in his case, I think maybe if he stays above 45, that's probably a really good idea for hormone production. Make sure that you're still eating carbohydrates as much as you can, plenty of protein, organize your training logically. And when it comes down to it, maybe this individual will be better off uh, dieting. I don't know how long he's dieted. I think that was not that was not said, and that's a really big question. Uh, yeah. Did he say how long it was or no? No. I mean, that, that that's really the biggest deciding factor. So maybe he should diet for two or three months at a time, take a one month maintenance phase, and repeat. You could do that, and eventually, one of those two or three months, you'll get super fucking lean. It just mm. won't happen right in one fell swoop. And I know people online that are dieting for six, seven months at a time, and I've done that shit before. And you know, all the drugs in the world won't save you from muscle loss at that point. So uh, it's um, definitely keep consider keeping the diet shorter. Consider upping your fats to about 45 grams minimum, maybe even more. And uh, watch your training volumes, intensities. Make sure you're uh, deloading and doing all that other correct stuff, so as to not overreach. Uh, serum testosterone drop a lot of times is a symptom of overreaching. So, uh, you know, or come to the dark side and uh, you don't worry about producing test anymore. You just get it right from the needle. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I, I'm kidding. Unless he lives in a country in which that is legal, and then I consider it ethical and then go to town. If you want like a thousand different side effects, it's great. Cool. It's funny. I was on. Uh, this has got nothing to do with uh, with <laughs> anything, but I've been on medication for. Uh, I had I had steroid treatment from um, the 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 hospital for almost three years, and unfortunately, none of that was anabolic. It was all <laughs> it was all just the the, the kind of good stuff. So mm. yeah, there were no advantages whatsoever. That sucks. That sucks, man. Catabolic steroids. That, that's uh, you should have been like, listen, I, these are the wrong kind. I need the other kind. <laughs> Pl plenty of fat and water gain, but no, no muscle gain, unfortunately. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty. I think that question. I think if there was more context, we could definitely give. Yeah. A recommendation, but we we without having a lot more, then it's difficult to say, but. Yeah, you can do a lot to prevent it as best you can. Yeah, you know, make sure the duration isn't too crazy, several months at a time. The deficit doesn't look too crazy. Make sure the training structure is oriented very well. And make sure you're eating enough fat. So the fat looks too low. The duration of, of the process might be too high. We didn't know. And it's yeah. very difficult to, to say with precision about an individual, you know, I, I, man, you could just be one of these people that test drops. Well, um, yeah. Some people get a huge test drop from dieting. Some people don't get anything at all. So it might just be something you have to deal with. But as long as you're checking all the right boxes and doing all the right general stuff, if you want more specific stuff, you have to go see an endocrinologist. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, there's there's no real context when that. We haven't got maintenance calories. We haven't got uh, dietary length or yeah. So yeah, not much. Oh, not a whole lot to go on. Yeah, and I think 
actually just to give a bit of personal um i don't know if that's the right word but because previously i suffered with low testosterone levels i actually went through a month on trt after my accident to bring them up to normal and then i managed to get off the trt which is wasn't expected but it's great so when i did my first contest i thought i know i'm going to take extra long and cut extra slow to try and prevent any problems and I now know that was probably the worst thing I probably could have done. And I didn't have any diet breaks. I didn't have any, any maintenance phases. And yeah, I was pretty wrecked by the end. <laughs> yeah. That sucks. So don't, don't do me. Um, <laughs> so do we have time for one more question, Mark? You bet. So Sebastian RS has asked this question. Um, in one of your podcasts, you said a beginner with goal of hypertrophy should focus on spending the whole MRV for developing all muscle groups evenly. Although I'm not sure we did say that. Um, how would you approach this in detail when programming? If I remember correctly, it was more the beginners should focus on bringing up their strongest body parts. No, I think Sebastian's right. Beginner, beginners should be focusing evenly. Intermediates should bring up the strong parts. Advanced should bring up the weak points. So I think he's correct okay. in that regard. How would you structure that? You know, that is a question I, I cannot possibly answer because I would need 50,000 other points of data. Most specifically, how many days a week he goes to the gym. Uh, what I would say is, for someone who is a beginner, uh, I like the alternating upper-lower upper routine very well. So... Uh, you know, if you go to the gym four times a week, upper, lower, upper, lower. If you go to the gym six times a week, upper, lower, upper, lower, upper, lower, right? Uh, and, and that's a very good start. And you do, a, you know, one day where you, for the lower body, you focus a lot on deadlifting and hamstring work and a little bit on your quads. Another day we focus a lot on your quads and a little bit on everything else. And then another day we focus a lot on glutes and adductors and a little bit on everything else. For your upper body days, you're going to have one day where you train a whole upper body, but you focus a lot on your back. Another day where you train your whole body, which you focus a lot on your chest. And then another day where you do a whole, all upper body, but focus a lot on your shoulders and arms. And that way you get really good variation. You get a little bit of that sort of uh, undulation effect, the DUP. And uh, you can progress very well like that uh, as a beginner. And training everything, uh, training everything to grow doesn't mean always training the same sequence of body parts every single day. You can still do a lot of alterations within the week to have priority structure, so it's a lot of heavy, intermediate, and light days. And But you just have to pay the total set number, total overloading set number for everything has to be roughly even. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Body parts go... I know a lot of people talk about, okay, you've got 10, 15 sets on your chest or pressing muscles, so you should have 15 sets on your pulling muscles. Is that somewhere you'd begin as a beginner? Yes, but you quickly realize that not all body parts progress at the same rates and you might have to alter that. You know, 15 sets for hamstrings will leave you crippled. 15 sets for quads would be perfect. 15 sets for your medial or your, your lateral deltoids, your side delts will leave you wanting to know if you trained at all. So there's definitely some muscle group differences there. Um, but yeah, starting out with everything roughly even, uh, especially having someone help you with a, writing a program if it's your first time that can kind of say, you know, this is too, probably too much hamstring and probably not enough chest and this and that. And then once you do that, start and then start tracking progress, start tracking soreness to see how you're actually disrupting homeostasis and be on your way to adjusting volume loads and try to push it towards your MRV. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, just 
I know that something as a personal trainer, when you're first learning, that's something they like. But I think key learning from yourself with the MRV concept is then you progress it. Um, otherwise, you could actually not progress evenly, even though you're trying to stick to even progression. It's not working. Totally. Totally. 100%. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I don't think we've got any other questions to cover unless you've got anything else to ask, Mark. No, I, I think that was awesome. I really enjoyed that. It was cool. Awesome. Yeah, thank you very much, Mike. Thanks, Guys, Mike. thanks so much for having me. And uh, let's put up another question blaster and uh, send it over to me. I'll share the shit out of it on my page, and I promise you we'll get 150 trillion questions. I know there's a lot of questions out there because I had a health diet and health only question and answer session and about one third of the people were like how do i get jacked and i have to be like this isn't about that and they're like sorry so i'll ask those people again when i share your post i'll be like i answer questions online you will get a shitload of questions i should have picked some from there as well and um i also want to take this opportunity no, no, to remind people sorry sorry no you shouldn't have because people need to fucking learn how to read instructions just fucking died in hell god damn it no <laughs> true not, when we ask you for the questions that you want answered, then you can submit them, but fuck. Anyway, sorry, continue. I was just going to say, um, to remind people that we have the opportunity to win the Diet and Health book, if you review the podcast, next week we will definitely be giving that out. Um, I'm sure we get a ton more reviews. Make sure they're files because that's all we want. And uh, yeah, just want to thank everyone again for listening, for tuning in, and for asking questions if you don't me and mark will have to come up with our own and we're really not worried about doing that because we could really talk to mike yeah be good cheers awesome. everyone take care